Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Um, So Beck's brother got a puppy the other week. Um, And if you know Beck, yes, it is exactly like our dog because she will try and sell our type of dog to anyone that she meets. Um, And just after they got the dog, we received a little home video from them on the WhatsApp chat. Beck's older brother is lying there on the floor just kind of staring at this puppy in in his pillow. And um, it's at night, and so Hamish's wife, Kimberly, is filming this, um, this scene. It's quite cute, and so she's got the light on because it's at night. And, and, um, and Hamish, at the end of it, kind of protests and says, don't shine the light on the dog's face. And um, it's kind of funny because, you know, there's just something about um, people not wanting to look light um, in the face. And I'm sure everyone can remember a time when you're sitting around the campfire and one of the kids come over and they want to talk to you and they just have to shine the, the torch right in your eyes. Um, and that's just a torch. But what about looking into the sun? Um, you know, you're not going to do that. It's going to leave a burn mark in your eyes, if you, even if you look at it for a second. But what if you gaze at it? And I've done some research. The sun is 150 million kilometres from Earth. And, and flying from Sydney to London, that is 17,000 kilometres. So from the Earth to the Sun, that's about 9,000 trips to, um, to London. So John's at the back. He's about 30 metres from me. So John's Sydney. And if I'm London, then from the Earth to the Sun is from John all the way to Coffs Harbour. 350 kilometres away. So the sun is a long way away. And even if we look at it, if we glance at it for a second, it burns our eyes. And what about looking at God? Um, there's this passage in the Bible where just after the, the, the um, exodus from Egypt and Moses is talking to God in the tent of meeting. And Moses says, please show me your glory. But the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and you will cover and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and does what, Jesus, does what God says. And then we read afterwards. Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid. Um, When Paul wrote to Timothy, he tried to put um, that sort of same essence into words and he said it like this who alone has immortality who dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see 
And the writer of Hebrews puts it like this, for our God is a consuming fire. Church, sometimes I feel like we think about God and his holiness like it's the, the light from a torch. But in reality, and it's kind of hard to fathom, that it's more like the light of the sun. And we get kind of glimpses of this throughout the scripture, this just totally shocking holiness. And today we're going to look at a passage that's another kind of glimpse um, of his awesome and fearful holiness. But today's also about hypocrisy, and it's a hard one to preach on <laughs> hypocrisy. Uh, someone said, if God dealt with all of us like he did with Ananias and Sapphira, our churches would be pretty empty. So let's go into this with humility and grace. But let's, let's pray to begin with. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> May it be a light to our path. And Lord, we pray that um, you will do a work in each of us as we um, learn about and th think through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I asked Renee to, um, to kind of broaden the passage today because what we talked about, what Mick spoke about last week, really is good context for today. Um, and so we saw this picture, another picture of the early church. Um, we've seen it a few times in the first few book of Acts, this kind of vital and radical new community living out the gospel that, that Jesus taught about. Um, so verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord and Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So there's this new community. It's a diverse community. There's people from all walks of life. There's rich. There's people with properties and houses. And there's poor. And there's people who are needy. And it's this awesome picture of everyone living together. And there's generosity each one is kind of looking around and seeing what the needs are and responding to that, um, not out of obligation, um, but through generosity. Um, and, and there's real sacrifice. And Mick made this point last week. Peter makes it clear when he's, um, when he's talking to Ananias that there's no obligation on this new community to sell their land and give the proceeds to the needy. This isn't a new form of Christian communism. This is gospel-inspired generosity. And we see in stories like this, there's something happened um, with Christians when we come to understand the good news of the gospel. It just changes the way we think. It changes the way we think about our possessions, our finances, our money. We, we kind of come away from that holding these things loosely. We see them as not as our own, but as gifts from God. So this early church was being moved by God's spirit and compelled into action, not out of obligation or church law. So the gospel changes us. It transforms us. We see everything differently. And we see uh, an example of this in 
that little book of Philemon at the back of the New Testament. And this isn't talking about selling property, but it's about slavery. So Paul, um, he's in, in prison and he's writing to his friend Philemon. Um, and hopefully that's pronounced right, Renee, if you're here. Um, so Philemon um, has a slave, um, Onesimus. And Onesimus is with Paul in prison um, and, um, as a helper. And Paul um, is sending Onesimus back back to Philemon and he's sending him back with an appeal to take Onesimus back not as a slave but as a brother so Paul is appealing to the gospel's transformation of Philemon's life that even though he owned Onesimus as a slave that he would treat him as a brother because as Christians it just doesn't make sense for us to relate to people in a master-slave relationship. There's not a rule that you can't, um, you can't own slaves, but the gospel has transformed people. It transforms the way we see things. We hold things loosely. And, and Mick talked about the difference between a principle or um, what's prescriptive in the Bible and examples of what's descriptive in the Bible. And so the, the principle here is the church is, is to care for and to love and to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. And the example or the description of what that looks like um, in terms of how the early church is working that out is that they sold their possessions. They sold their houses. They sold their land. And they brought that money um, to the apostles and they distributed it amongst the community to everyone who had need. So how's it going for us? How are we going with that principle of living generously and sacrificially and caring for our brothers? What are the examples um, that we're using at Cows Newey um, as a community? We might not be called to sell our houses, to sell our land, but we are definitely called to care for our brothers and sisters. So um, that's the picture of um, the, this kind of community. And then um, we meet two characters. Um, they do exactly the same thing outwardly, but they're treated very differently. So firstly, last week, we met Barnabas. That's Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's kind of all we know about Barnabas from, from this passage. We hear a lot more about him later. But he's, he's, he's shown as an example of this radical new way of life that's just been described. And now we get into today's passage. Um, and we get introduced to this second character, Ananias and Sapphira, um, husband and wife. Luke introduces them with a but, which, which means that he's really trying to draw the distinction between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So both characters sell property and bring the proceeds to the apostles and give to the needy. So outwardly, actions are the same. But Peter confronts Ananias. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then um, Sapphira, Anna's, Ananias's wife, arrives three hours later to the same scene, and a very, same thing, a very similar thing happens. And Peter said to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? So on the surface, they look just like Barnabas, generous people. But Peter shows them and asks what's going underneath the surface. He tells them they've lied. The, the way they've presented themselves is not true. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. Now, this passage is um, interesting in that it shows the personhood of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't some sort of nebulous force. It's a person. He believes that, or Peter believes that the Holy Spirit is both a person and divine. And why do I say that? He's personal because he can be lied to. You can lie to a person. You can't lie to something like a nebulous force. You can't, for example, lie to gravity. You can only lie to a person. So here Peter is, is making the case that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's part of the Godhead. So back to, to lying to the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Um, what does Peter mean that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit? Didn't he lie to... Didn't, sorry. Didn't Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter? Not to hold to the Holy Spirit? So outwardly, that's correct. We lie to people. Um, but inwardly, we lie to the church. And so this new church, every one of those individuals, is a new temple. Each one of them is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, we have the bricks and mortar of the temple. Um, and God's presence comes down into that temple in a column of fire. It's amazing. It's an awesome scene. Um, but we see in the New Testament that that comes at Pentecost in each individual, a little flame of fire sitting above their heads. Peter puts it like this to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So in reality, the couple did lie to Peter, but their true lie was to the Holy Spirit. It was to God. So they tried to deceive the church, but we can see that that is the same as lying to the Holy Spirit and to God. And even though the kind of the issue at hand was, was money and how much money they gave, that wasn't their true sin. That was just the way that the sin was worked out. The sin underneath the sin was that they were hypocrites. They were presenting themselves to the church as something or someone that they weren't. They were Christian Pharisees. And Jesus spoke a lot about the Pharisees. They were using religion to look and feel superior to others. So this is a, this is a pretty unique time in church history. It's the, um, it's the only time that the whole church has existed in just this one congregation. It's quite, quite amazing when you think about it. And so God is really taking special care 
of this new community. So last week, um, we, took, we read about the attacks on the new church from the, the Sanhedrin and, and the, le- the, the Jewish leaders, and we'll see that again next week, actually. But this is the, the, the only attack that kind of comes from within. Um, it's this act of um, hypocrisy by Ananias and Sapphira. And we know that you know, Jesus speaks a lot about hypocrisy. Um, I would say he kind of saves his strongest words for hypocrites. Um, and the way he presents it is that it's as pervasive as yeast is in a loaf of bread. Um, so a tiny amount of yeast affects the entire loaf. Um, Luke 12. Beware of the leaven, or, or in our terms, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he's got that long diatribe against the, the scribes and the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23. He says... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. That's what Jesus would say to Ananias and Sapphira, right? I don't want your money. Even if you offered it all, what I want is your heart. I want your inside to be clean. And then Peter um, kind of, so that shows, he shows them their sin and then he explains, he kind of pulls back the veil on how this kind of comes about, what's really going on. He shows them that Satan's at work. Satan has filled your heart. Now, Christians, as, as believers, um, can our hearts be filled with an evil spirit? Didn't I just tell you that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Can an evil spirit even reside in us? Well, Scripture tells us that Satan um, does get involved with believers, and Peter Um, in particular, knows this full well. And I'm sure most of you will know um, that passage where Jesus is um, telling the disciples about his death and resurrection. And and Peter says, "Um, Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And scripture also tells us that we're to know this and to actively fight against us, against it. Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. So Peter says, Satan is working in their heart. But he also calls out their sinful nature that you contrived in your heart to do this, he said to Ananias. There's that, um, there's that passage in Ephesians 4 where Paul says to the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So in other words, our sinful nature can open the door 
for Satan to step in. And what he's saying to, to the Ephesians in particular here in this passage is that sinfully holding a grudge is like a welcome mat for Satan. So we have this picture of Satan and our sinful nature working together somehow. So how does this happen? It's, it's unlikely that kind of Ananias and Sapphira um, started out wanting to cheat the church or lie to God. It, it starts in small ways, doesn't it? Just a thought, a passing thought. James um, puts it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So Ananias and Sapphira, they probably had a thought. Hey, let's sell the property, but keep some of the money from ourselves. Did you see all the adulation that Barnabas got? And then the thought turns into a plan, and then the plan turns into the action. And that's what it looks like for Ananias and Sapphira. But I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in, in his book, Mere Christianity. It kind of generalizes it for all of us. He says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. So Satan's at work and our sinful nature's at work. And what is the result of this contriving of the heart and filling of the heart by Satan that has resulted in them lying to the Holy Spirit? They were struck dead. Ananias, when he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and, and very similar for Sapphira. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When they saw this or heard about this, because obviously news sped very quickly, the Jewish mind would have gone back um, to the other times in scriptures where this had happened. They would have thought about Nabad and Abihu, Aaron's sons, um, Aaron being the, um, the head of the priestly line in Leviticus 10. These, these two sons had just commenced their priestly duties. Um, they knew God's command not to offer unauthorized incense on the altar, but they did it anyway. And we read, now, I've, I've spelt them differently twice, Nabad, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put it in the fire and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then there's the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel Uzzah was um, helping to move the ark of God and they were carrying it on a cart instead of carrying it on poles, which is the way they were supposed to. And um, the cart wobbles and, and Uzzah reaches out to, to steady the ark and God strikes him dead. 
And these, these kind of passages can, um, can be a little bit unsettling in our, in our kind of human minds. Um, but they really are showing us um, the importance of God's holiness, whether it's his temple or his ark or it's, it's, it's his instructions for worship. So when the Jews see that, um, that in the striking of um, striking Ananias and Sapphira dead, um, God's showing them that this new church and each one of them as its members is something holy too. He's reminding them that this church and everyone in, us, in it is a new temple and that the old temple has been replaced. So, yeah, as I said, we, kind of, we can read some of these passages and, and we can question them and um, we kind of read it because we're reading it with our own perspectives, aren't we, um, around God's holiness and, and our sin. And, and I'm sure, when I, particularly that one about Uzzah, um, I'm sure when I read that, I thought, man, that's, um, that seems a bit harsh and it, it can, be, can be hard to understand. Um, and Because we, we like to think about um, God as is endlessly forgiving. Um, you know, there's that passage, how often should we forgive our brother? 70 times 7 comes the response. Um, and, you know, God's always going to bring us back to repentance. Um, there's that, that line in um, 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, ju- and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Scripture, and we saw it here, um, with Ananias and Sapphira, Scripture also tells us that sometimes God won't give us another chance um, to confess our sins and be forgiven. So in the same book that we just read from, um, 1 John, um, it's the same book that, it's, that says God is love. We read, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God shall give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So there are sins that Christians commit that don't lead to death, and there are some sins that do lead to death. And, um, you know, John doesn't really talk specifics here about um, what sins he's talking about. He doesn't name specific sins. So what can we take from this? Um, John's saying here that there may come a time when God has had enough of our sin, um, when our time on the earth is up. And that seems to be what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and I think John's message here um, in that, the book, first one, his message to believers isn't God is love and he doesn't judge like he used to. It is stop sinning because there is a sin that leads to death. So Ananias and Sapphira, they're called out for their lies, they're called out for their hypocrisy and they are struck dead. So what was the outcome of this? So we read in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. 
None of them dared, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high regard. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so we get this um, another picture of this vital church. So firstly, we see that God used this event to fuel a healthy fear um, of the Lord amongst the church. Um, so fear can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. And, and the Bible says a lot about fear. In Hebrews 13, it says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we're not to fear man, obviously. Um, that'll be no surprise, but we are to fear God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So healthy fear comes from knowing who God is and recognising what he's able to do. Um, but it shouldn't drive us away from God. There's that passage in Nehemiah 1 where it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We should be, our, our reverence and, and awe of God should draw us towards him. In 1 John, um, again, in chapter 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we're not to fear God cowering like slaves, um, fearing punishment, but growing into a place where we don't fear God's rejection of us, where we're content to be accepted in, in our acceptance of him. So there's fear. And secondly, we see this picture of a repulsive community. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So on one hand, this vital community alienates people. None of the rest dared to join them. It's, it's somewhat intimidating or unnerving to some people. But we also see the flip side. They're highly respected by others. They're highly respected by unbelievers. And they were adding new people to their number. So we see this picture of the presence of God within a community is, is both attractive and frightening. And there's this sense that living in a vital community, um, a church community, requires courage. And it means there's going to be some areas that's going to be challenging. And it requires us to see sin for what it is and to see God's grace for what it is, which is what Ananias and Sapphira never did. And you know, in a lot of ways, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' message is repulsive to our world. To hear that you're a sinner who can't be saved by their own moral deeds, that's repulsive. To be in a community of faith and trying to live lives of faith, that's repulsive. That while God loves you in spite of your sin, that he doesn't love you in a way that, you can st that lets you stay in your sin, that's repulsive. In an individualistic society, to hear that um, you're living in a community with accountability, 
that's repulsive. It's risky being committed. Being in a community, you're likely to be exposed. People might see on the inside what others can't see on the outside. But what a blessed thing it is to be in fellowship with a community of believers. And, and this is, lastly, we see a picture of an attractive community. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. And all were healed. So it's this, again this picture of a vital, life-giving community that's full of grace and truth. It's attractive and repulsive. It's comfortable and it's challenging. And God added to their number. So um, I just want to say a bit about miracles. So we see a lot of miracles going on in the early church. Now, miracles don't occur uniformly through the Bible. They seem to kind of come in clusters at certain times. And they're not actually a necessity um, for a vital church. We don't need to be looking for them and we don't need to be concerned if we don't see them. If we focus on miracles, that's really missing the point. They're a means to an end and the end is that people are being converted into faith in the gospel. What is necessary for a vital church is that friends are bringing friends to church. That's a sign of a vital church. So that's the outcome. What do we take from that story? I'm going to talk about three things. Firstly, as I started, God is a holy God and we should not lose sight of having a holy fear. Secondly, God is interested in what is on the inside and what is on the outside. He wants a whole life. The gospel should result in a transformed heart and a wholeness that shows on the outside as well. He, um, he hates hypocrisy. He wants integrity. What does that mean? That means how you act at church, how I act at the pulpit, should be the same as how I act at work. How you act at your family barbecue, how you act... Um, at the soccer um, game on Friday night. And, you know, to be really honest, I think I have a problem with, with um, accountability and integrity. I, I really struggle to share things with people, which means I'm probably at risk of, you know, walking that path of Ananias and Sapphira, and I need to make sure that, um, that I'm dealing with that in terms of my account accountability. So I'm certainly preaching this to myself today. And thirdly, what do we need to do to help to avoid getting where Ananias and Sapphira did, of letting sin grow within us while, um, on the inside while acting on the outside like everything's okay? Practically, I think this, is, um, this requires being part of an accountable community. And as I said before, in an individualistic society like ours, accountability is a scary word. We, we like to do things our own way. So I'm going to ask you, do we have an accountable community at Calves Newey? And what does it look like? What I think it looks like is a community where we have people who would challenge us, 
a community where there is compassionate, patient and gracious truth-telling to each other. So, do you have someone in your life who will challenge you? Who will say to you, you haven't been loving, you haven't been joyful, you haven't been kind, you haven't been compassionate, you haven't been merciful to those in need, you haven't been giving yourself away sacrificially. Because if there isn't any compassionate, patient and gracious truth-telling, that is not a loving community. And if you're in a relationship where you're never challenged or confronted, is that a true loving relationship? So what we want is a community where we're transformed by the gospel. And the gospel gives us two things that allows us to have these relationships, humility and courage. It gives us humility to realise that we're all broken and the courage to realise that there isn't any sin in us that God doesn't already know about, which for Christ has already died. And it gives us the courage to not let our friends stay in brokenness. And just to finish, I like the way John Lynn put it. If you truly understand grace, when someone says to you that you've been unkind or there's hardness in your heart, you'll say, you know what? That is just the tip of the iceberg. You're only seeing the bits that stick out of the water on the outside, but it goes so much deeper than that. And you'll also say, but God's love in Jesus and his forgiveness of me goes so much deeper than what you see on the outside. He redeems all of me. Let's be like this, Calves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy God, we cannot fathom you. We cannot even look on you, Lord, without being consumed. And yet, you love us and you um, want a relationship with us and you communicate with us in all different ways. We just thank you so much about the story that you've given us um, this picture of your young church and this story of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira and it can be challenging to, to read passages where you strike people dead and, um, and hearing about sins that lead to death. I look forward to asking you more about these things when I get to heaven, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, that... Um, that you're a saving God. That even though you are holy, even though you are just, you sent your son to die in our place. That we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, Lord. I pray for each of us now, Lord, as, as we kind of go away today, um, that you will help our minds and our hearts dwell on the things that you want us to. That you will... Show us the brokenness, the broken parts inside of us that maybe we're keeping from you. That we'll be courageous enough 
to face up to those broken parts of us, that we'll be courageous enough to share those broken parts with trusted people in our lives and that we'll be accountable in an attractive and a repulsive community that is both true and loving to your gospel, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.